0: What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And today I have such an amazing conversation with Michelle Walker. So to, to kind of intro this, all right, so uh I'm somebody who has struggled with anxiety, you know, and uh I, I'm always thinking about, you know, risk and decision making and all this stuff. And while I might be more risk averse, I notice how people are all just loosey goosey and just, you know, they, they have this optimism bias and don't think anything terrible is going to happen. And I'm curious about that. You know, why are some people, you know, better at assessing risks than others? And Michelle Walker, she is an expert in this field. And she, uh, you know, she has this metaphor she uses of The Gray Rhino, which is her first book. She has a new book out called You Are What You Risk. And we have an amazing conversation. But anyways, before we get started with this conversation if you're new if you're new here make sure if you're on apple make sure you subscribe and you know what else helps because this is a newer podcast this is episode four so make sure you subscribe Rate it, leave a review. It doesn't even have to be a good review. Leave an honest review. If you don't like something, let me know. I, I, I could take the feedback. You know, that's what I like to do. So, uh, yeah, make sure you're following. Um, if you're on Spotify, you could just follow it there. Uh, yeah, and I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Just honestly, I really appreciate it. I, I, I try to have interesting conversations and have discussions about things that I don't see really covered anywhere else. So I'm trying to get this out to as many people as possible. But anyways, make sure you check out the description down below too. I have all my social media links so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. They're up every single Wednesday and I've already pre-recorded a bunch of great conversations with some amazing authors. But anyways, without further ado, today we are going to be talking about why we ignore risk, how we manage risk, how we can make better decisions and kind of acknowledge when the choices we make and how we assess risk can affect other people. So without further ado, let me introduce Michelle Walker. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey Michelle, I hope you are doing well today. So yeah, let's get started by trying to understand what the whole gray war- rhino thing is. Uh, so, so personally, I, I, I've talked to you about this obviously, but I've been really fascinated with like risk management for a while now, and your book was recommended by one of my other favorite authors, Ann Janzer. And, uh, and yeah, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll check out this book about the gray rhino. But anyways, anyways, can you give the audience and everybody who doesn't know about your work kind of an overview of what the gray rhino is and how and why we should be aware of it?
1: The gray rhino is a metaphor to help us to take a new look at the obvious things charging right at us that we're more likely to ignore than we think, but we're not condemned to. It's a challenge. I ask people to picture a giant gray rhinoceros right in front of them, the horn pointed at you pawing the ground, snorting, and about to come your way and think about how you're going to respond. Are you going to get out of the way? Are you going to get trampled? Or are you going to use the strength of that rhino to do something better? It's a rhino because of the horn and the weight and the danger of it. Uh, It's gray because of uh, the way that rhinos are, are talked about in the real world. You have the black rhino, which is gray. You have the white rhino, also the official species name, which also is gray. And so the color for me is a way to recognize how much more likely we are to not pay attention to the obvious thing that's coming at us. But I don't want people to think that by definition, you ignore them. We have a term for that. That's the elephant in the room, which normalizes doing and saying nothing. The gray rhino is the thing that people do talk about. And some people do something. And I want to use it to get people to reflect on why some people respond and other people don't. And how each one of us can do
0: better. Yeah, and a- absolutely. Like, this is why I was so interested in the book. Like you mentioned, like, we've all obviously heard of, you know, the elephant in the room. But I'm like, what about the thing that we <laughs> we could, you know, we see, we see coming our way? Uh, just for example, you know, uh, I, I'm a recovering addict and I've worked in treatment. And, you know, to to stay sober, uh, you know, we, we try to watch out for certain things that can lead to a relapse or, you know. Even take us to the brink or whatever, and I I notice how a lot of people just kind of ignore that, right? Um, but but yeah, and then and then just dealing with you know just everyday people and myself and everyday decisions, I'm like, why why do we do this? And that's one of the reasons I love your book. And you know, moving it to the next question, so I am someone who has had a generalized anxiety disorder for for most of my life and I thought that it was a curse but as I get older I see how my anxiety has actually kind of helped me because it's made me a little bit more cautious with my decision making and it helps me stay away from certain risky situations meanwhile like I was talking about like I observe and notice how how carefree some people are and how they just like play fast and loose with their decisions so in your opinion is there i don't know is there like a healthy amount of anxiety uh, or skepticism that we should all have and how do we kind of find that balance without being overly pessimistic or anxious or worried
1: so there's no ideal amount of anxiety or skepticism for any one person to have That's partly because there's only so much that we can control, so you don't want to stress out about something that's really not part of your personality. But being aware of your own level of anxiety and how it might compare to the people around you and where it works for you and where it doesn't is a hugely important first step. It's part of the risk fingerprint concept that I talk about in You Are What You Risk, the choices that you make, which are based on how you see risk, how sensitive you are to it, how much you're willing to accept and what you do about it. Being aware of your risk fingerprint and the anxiety levels, your sensitivity to risk and your comfort level and what makes you more comfortable or less comfortable can help you to adopt strategies that will help you to be more open to opportunities, quote unquote, good risks, or positive risks and changes. And to pull you back from the ledge if you know that you tend to leap before you look people who are anxious can develop their risk-taking muscles by putting themselves in low-stakes situations that are out of their comfort zone and people who are reckless can surround themselves with an inner circle who's willing to say hey maybe you want to rethink that a little bit and so it's not necessarily a matter of any type of approach to risk being the right one or not But it's whether you align your anxiety and your sensitivity to risk to the things that you do in life and to whether you're true to who you are or not. And you can only do that by understanding who you are and what your relationship with risk is.
0: I absolutely love that and for everybody listening so yeah michelle had two books ray rhino and you are what you risk uh her her newest book is you are what you risk and yeah the risk fingerprint and i i love that because like yeah i i personally you know think that we all need to kind of assess you know our our risk uh tolerance our risk fingerprint as as you put it it's not something that i really took into consideration really until i started uh you know getting into like investing and stuff like that um earlier this year and learning about all that because you keep hearing you know uh that that come up right like you know what what is your risk tolerance but but yeah I could definitely relate to what you're saying because with my anxiety like it's it's like strengthening this this muscle putting myself in little situations like for example I used to have terrible social anxiety right and part of what I started practicing is is putting myself in these social situations, assessing it, seeing how I handled it and stuff like that. And I was able to do it, but, but yeah, I think, you know, like you mentioned, like if you're somebody who's just like jumping into everything, maybe it's good to have people around who, who kind of pull you back. And for us who are a little bit, you know, too risk averse, we have people around who kind of help push us to, to try new things. Um, so, so yeah. So, all right. All right, Michelle. This is a question that has been on my mind forever. Okay. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping you, an expert in looking at risk, can help me figure this out. So here's what I have to ask Why on earth? do people live in Florida? Like for example, right? Like one of my one of my best friends, old roommates, he moved to Florida and, and like, there's just like hurricanes and just disasters and, you know, like not even talking about, you know, the people in Florida, right? Um, and no offense to anybody listening from Florida, but anyways, anyways. Uh, but you discuss natural disasters quite a bit, uh, you know, in Grey Rhino. And I can't imagine the thought process of someone moving, to Florida, like the state is regularly hit by hurricanes. And what's nuts is, and you talk about this, is how some people they hear about, you know, incoming hurricanes and stuff like that and they don't even evacuate. So what what would you say, like based on your research and your experience, what would you say goes into the, the thought process of people moving to Florida? And more importantly, why don't they evacuate when storms are coming in?
1: Well, since I don't live in Florida, I don't want to risk saying why people live there. And I bet every single person has their own motivation and no two are the same. Uh, But in general, living on a coastal area or an earthquake prone area involves a risk assessment that you've, you've got to do if you pay attention. I was just reading that between 2010 and 2017, Despite all of the hurricanes and the intensifying weather, people built more than 4.6 billion, with a B, worth of homes in coastal areas at risk of flooding. And that amazes me. And I would love to take a much closer look at how many of those are insured or not, and how much of that insurance was private and how much of it was government, and whether we're creating an environment that encourages this kind of risky behavior or not. But back to the reason why people move to dangerous areas. The first thing is humans in general discount the future and we don't pay enough attention to the things that we don't want to see happen. We've got sort of a rose colored glasses bias. So people might think about how beautiful the sky and sand are today and they put off worrying about the storm that might come. That calculation probably also involves how much someone enjoys living there right now and how likely they and their possessions are to survive a natural disaster. You know, I think about California, I know people who say they would never ever move there because of earthquakes, but there are still an awful lot of people who are living there knowing about earthquakes. So research suggests, That the majority of people who don't evacuate from a hurricane do that because they underestimate how strong the storm will be, or they overestimate how likely their homes are to survive, or they just simply wait too long for the information about how to make the decision. Some people can't afford to evacuate, and in communities where people don't trust their neighbors, they may think that looting is the bigger risk than storm damage. It's a bunch of different risk calculations, but I suspect that at least part of the decision not to evacuate has to do with our need for control. And perhaps some people feel that if they lose their home, they might as well let the storm take them too. Also, we pay more attention to the stories of people who don't evacuate and either get rescued dramatically or perish than we do to the people who do evacuate, which is actually a quite large number. And so our impressions likely don't accurately reflect the number of people who stay versus those who do flee for safety. And in fact, this is very interesting, many people evacuate who are not required to. And in fact, during Hurricane Irma in Florida, uh, nearly half of the people who evacuated were not in evacuation zones. So that's the other half of the questions. Why are some people too cautious? And why are some people too likely to take risks?
0: Michelle, I, I love it. I love it. And we, we honestly need to talk more. Like, first off, you bring up an excellent point. Like we you know, we're, we're more likely to notice. I didn't even think about that. We're more likely to notice the, the, these big stories about people, you know, like who stayed at their house and, you know, a helicopter or someone in a boat or something had to like come and save them. And we don't pay attention to, you know, that in comparison to how many, you know, people did actually leave. And that's interesting too. People who don't have to evacuate, but do, but, um, but yeah, uh, optimism bias is something that i think about a lot too and how we discount the future and and everything like that i i notice that a lot you know um it's it's interesting because uh, i personally feel like there's this you know balance of you know optimism and like healthy like you know risk assessment like we want to believe that everything know it's going to work out great and be wonderful and everything like that but we need to kind of address the possibility that something might go wrong and i think that's one of the reasons i'm so interested in risk management because you know and i've been i've been guilty of this in certain scenarios and stuff but uh you know just living this life where you know nothing nothing can go wrong um but yeah so one of the sections i i loved in your book was about how denial plays this major role in why we don't spot, you know, these great rhinos. And one would think that we evolved to recognize these risks and like kind of course correct, but we, you know, we stay in bad relationships, we stay at bad jobs, and sometimes we just don't take general warnings sincerely, whether it's from like friends or family members or you know, like we were just talking about, you know, like the news and experts. So so why do you think we humans have this tendency to turn to denial rather than facing the reality of what's actually happening or what's possible.
1: Denial is a protective mechanism that keeps us from being overwhelmed by stressful situations where we couldn't possibly absorb everything at once without having a breakdown. And temporarily, denial can have its uses. But the principle of all good things in moderation applies here. It's dangerous to hold on to denial for too long. In The Grey Rhino, I talk about denial, like other cognitive quirks, as applying generally to many people. But some of us are more susceptible than others to deny things. And some people with questionable motives have learned to prey on our natural instinct to deny that things we don't want to know are true. Here, I'm thinking about climate denial promoted by fossil fuel companies or say tobacco companies attempts to downplay the dangers of smoking. But as I thought more about uncertainty and how we deal with it, when I was writing You Are What You Risk, I've also come to appreciate just how much people hate uncertainty itself. In fact, when they say they don't like to take risks, what they often mean is that they don't like uncertainty. So they stay in that toxic relationship or job, and they pretend that it's not so bad after all, because they fear the uncertainty that comes with making the changes they know they need to do. And finally, we deny things when we don't feel we have the power to change them. After all, what's the point of worrying about something you can't do anything about? I think uh, uh, you know AA has something to say about that. There's also an expression learned helplessness for people who give up when they feel a problem is too overwhelming and they can't do anything to solve it. That's why we need to take a harder look at human agency, our sense that we have a power to make positive change. I started hearing that word a lot in the mainstream media during the 2016 presidential elections as a way of talking about some of the problems in the United States. And and I think it's worth taking another look into. You know, when people believe they have no power, they often act where they feel they do have power, even if those actions make a situation worse. And that's the counterpoint to denial. It's it's the opposite. When you go after a problem that might not be there, or you do something that might not be solving a problem because you can't solve and you don't wanna admit The thing that's there that you can't do something about
0: that's that's so interesting uh how you bring it up and you know our fear of uncertainty that's that's something that you know i uh i had issues with for most of my life that's a lot uh where a lot of my anxiety came from and you know you mentioned Twelve Step programs and that powerlessness, and that's that's one of the things, right? Like some people, you know, who aren't in recovery. Like when I say this, they get like freaked out, and they're like, "Wait, what do you mean?" I, I'm I'm grateful, you know, I'm grateful for my addiction because, you know, when I recovered and I got into Twelve Step programs, I learned a lot of things that I hadn't taken into consideration, and yeah, one of the steps is a is about that powerlessness. It's that that first step and something I, I learned was how many things I don't have control over. And then for me personally, it, it turned into this kind of like acceptance, right? Like I had to accept the fact that there are a lot of things that I can't control. But when you talk about human agency, it helped me focus on the things that I can control. But I really think that's interesting how you bring that up. When we feel, when we feel powerless, when we feel there's uncertainty, you know, we we might move to somewhere where we do feel like we have control like i i picture someone who feels powerless at their job right and then they come home and they're very bossy with their spouse or their kids or you know whatever it is but yeah it's it's really interesting because i I love reading books too on just like kind of you know self-deception why do we lie ourselves why do we lie to ourselves and why do we uh you know deny things and live in denial right and they are these protective mechanisms and you know, uh, something that's like, just personally helped me is just kind of like being self-aware of it, right? And just kind of sitting there and like asking myself like, uh, am I really looking at this, you know, rationally or am I in kind of denial, you know, and all that. Um, but yeah, so, so in one part of the book, uh, you discuss why we don't act or why we, you know, quote unquote, like kick the can down the road, you know, when it comes to issues like the economy or with, climate change and why i'm wondering why why do you think that is and what are some of the things that we can do to recognize you know the gray rhino and make you know better decisions for our future generations rather than just like oh you know someone someone else will deal with this this big issue
1: there are lots and lots of reasons why we muddle or kick the can down the road do everything we can to avoid solving a problem It might be a lack of political will or lack of buy-in from the people with the power to do something. Maybe not enough financial resources, not enough information, lack of a sense of urgency. And every once in a while there is no good solution. There are just least worst solutions. And of course you have to identify the obstacles so that you can overcome them. But just like with denial, all good things in moderation, many people get so focused on the obstacles to solving a problem that they just can't seem to make the leap to asking what it takes to fix things it's a mindset shift once you've identified what's in the way you can ask yourself what do you need and who can help you get it and how do you convince them from the way that markets and bonuses and ceo compensation focus on short-term quarterly and annual targets to short political terms that encourage politicians to kick the can down the road, the incentive systems in our policy and market environments are stacked against us acting quickly. And so we need to change them. This is the sort of thing that I call a meta-Grey Rhino, that is a structural obstacle that we need to deal with if we are to better confront all of the other gray rhinos, like economic weaknesses or climate change. Pricing is a big structural obstacle too. Big corporations get to take big risks that affect people who don't have a say in whether they are affected by those risks, but often end up paying for them. That might be taxpayers left on the hook for a financial crisis after executives are long gone with bonuses in their pockets, or say Texas homeowners and businesses after the lights went out on them because power companies didn't weatherproof their turbines.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, Michelle. Um, you know that that's one of the things, and I I don't I don't you know know what you know the the answer is to that you know especially when it comes to you know like uh, you know political things or you know how corporations are you know regulated and you like like you mentioned when, you know, these, you know, when people take risks that can affect other people, right? Like we, you know, I think a lot of us, well, hopefully a lot of us pay attention to that. Like I'm a parent, right? When I take a risk, I have to take into consideration how will my risk affects, affect my son, you know? Uh, I have my lovely girlfriend and we've been together and, you know, living together for a, a few years now. And, you know, like if I take a, a risk at my job or whatever, like it, it can affect them. But you know, these are just two people. They're very important people to my life. But when you think about these big corporations who take these financial risks and all these kind of things, you know, they could affect millions of people. Or, or you know, the financial crash of two thousand eight, um, and and it could affect so many people. And I don't know what the solution is because when we're kicking the, that you know kicking that metaphorical can down the road we have to not only have empathy, but we also have to look, ha, figure out how to have empathy for those you know, future people, the future generations, the future you know, whoever who might be affected by this. Um, but anyways, one, one last and final question for you, all right? Because we've been talking about you know, risk and why we deny risk and all that kind of stuff. But here's, here's something I've been curious about. Um, when, like, after a disaster, some people really overreact to what happened, right? And, you know, maybe, you know, on an individual level, it might be, you know, trauma-related or, you know, whatever it may be, but, like, in a more, you know, broader sense, uh, when we're talking about that overcorrection, when we look at, you know, uh, 9-11, for example, and how we responded with airport security, like it, it was a, a massive overcorrection in the amount of money and funding and everything like that. So in your opinion, whether it's on a personal level or you know, a broader sense, what are some of the ways that we can kind of analyze a situation after the fact and properly calibrate how to move forward without that kind of you know, like overcorrection?
1: Being aware of both the rational and emotional elements of our decisions is key. And people who lean toward one style or the other need to understand which one is theirs. And they also need to show empathy towards people on the other side of the scale. It's so helpful to analyze situations from different perspectives. The people who made the rules about taking off shoes in airports, for example, saw the bigger threat is being accused of not doing enough. If you think about risk as impact times likelihood, even if it wasn't that likely that there would be another attack with with a shoe, a shoe bomb, they focused more on the size of the impact if something were to go wrong and they'd get blamed for it. On the other hand, it's extremely likely that people will waste time and experience irritation with airport security. But the impact is small, and temporary and paradoxically, it may even reassure people that somebody is doing something. However, as we've seen in some of the reports of dangerous things making it through airport security anyway, it's more than possible that all of the attention to little petty things like taking off your shoes can take airport security workers' attention away from catching bigger things. But the people who made the policy can point to their requiring people to take off their shoes and belts as quote-unquote evidence that they did all they could the emotional elements of this policy are huge they're also a fascinating study of putting emotion first in making security decisions the real question is what else can we think of doing that will reassure us that we're doing everything we can to protect ourselves, but that's more effective when you measure it empirically. Pre-screening programs developed because people didn't want to waste so much time and there's a lot to be said for them, although they're certainly a, a privileged response. Perhaps there are other things that we could do. In any situation, however, it's smart to consider what makes you and the people around you more comfortable with certain risks, either in the heat of a crisis or even better ahead of time. This might be better knowledge or support systems that include both experts in subject matter and your personal inner circle being there for you. as the people who know what's going on with the situation, but also people who really know you and can provide insights that you might not be able to see yourself. Another thing that you can do is to practice getting out of your comfort zone, whether in social or career or financial situations. This can help you to build up your ability to do things that you don't want to do, even when you know you should, either to deflect a risk, a gray rhino that's coming at you in your personal life, or to take an opportunity, a positive risk. Also focusing on other people's needs, particularly those of your loved ones, can help to diffuse tension in situations where differences in risk perceptions, attitudes, and behaviors can make a bad situation even worse. The gray rhino looked much more at the structural, systemic, and general behavior responses to gray rhinos. Um, But the sequel, You Are What You Risk, goes into a lot more depth on the personal elements of how much responses differ from person to person and how we can improve them both as individuals, but also as organizational leaders and as policymakers to try to create the best risk-taking and the best risk prevention environment for everyone.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. And thank you so, so much, Michelle, for taking the time. To be on the podcast and discuss, you know, your amazing books and assessing risks. So, so for everybody out there, make sure you check the description of this episode. I'm going to link both of Michelle's books, Gray Rhino. You are and you are what you risk. They are both fantastic. And and like we discussed throughout this episode, like we make decisions on a daily basis, and are we properly, you know, assessing the risk and who else it's going to affect and all that and both of her books do such an amazing job covering it. But also, also, make sure you're following her on Twitter. She, she's, you know, always speaking and doing cool stuff and, you know, uh, sharing information and all that. Uh, I, I love following her on Twitter. So uh, I'm going to uh, put her link uh, to her Twitter account down in the description as well. So make sure you are following her. And I really hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. But anyways, anyways, that's all we got for this episode. And if you want to support the channel, if you or, or the podcast, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm used to doing YouTube. If you want to support the podcast in any way, uh, yeah, more stuff in the description. Uh, you know, uh, I write some books that you can get, you know, over on my website, or you become a patron and get exclusive content and early content and all that jazz. And there's also an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy, right? Like I mentioned that I uh, have struggled with, you know, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, but I also have, you know, like many people get bouts of depression and I'm in recovery and BetterHelp Online Therapy has been a lifesaver, you know, especially during the pandemic. You can do it from home, it's all online. So you do it from your phone, you can chat, you can call, you can, you know, FaceTime type deal within the app. And it's, it's really cool. So anyways, Check that out if you need, but, but, but if you want to support the channel in another way, all you have to do is just share this with someone, you know, just share it, share it on, you know, your social media or whatever. And another huge thing that helps is if you, like I mentioned, like if you follow and uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave a little review, the algorithm absolutely loves that. But anyways. For those of you who are new and don't know what's going on, I post new episodes with amazing people and have great conversations about their books and different topics every single Wednesday. So stay tuned and you can follow me on social media so you don't miss anything. But anyways, thank you so, so much for listening. Make sure you manage and assess risk as best as possible. And I will talk to you all in the next episode.